Thanks, Stephen. Good evening, everyone. Uh, let me ask you a question, and thanks for the way Steve set it up for tonight. But let me ask you a question. Uh, is being controversial a good thing or a bad thing? Okay. Is being controversial a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I, I think it's probably fair to say that a number of people in leadership today Leadership, for example, come out with some controversial statements. Uh, I was going to give you some examples, but I've, I've decided against that for various reasons. Although I'm sure we can all think of at least one, particularly at the moment, there are a few controversial characters on the world stage right now. But is being controversial good or bad? Is it wise or is it unwise? I came across this, uh, this comment, because I've been thinking about this during the week, I came across this, this comment earlier. If there is one rule that permeates the web, it's that controversy is key if you want to get people talking. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? It, it came in a, an article entitled, The Science of Creating Controversial Content. So there is a science to this. But the writer of this article went on to say this. Data shows that controversy increases the likelihood of discussion at low levels, but beyond a moderate level of controversy, additional controversy actually decreases likelihood of discussion. So we've got to be careful if we're going to be controversial. The actual definition, I don't know, if, do you, does anyone know what the, the definition of controversial is? Here, here it is. Causing disagreement or discussion. And so you could argue that some controversy is good because it provokes dialogue. It promotes conversation. So here's another question for you. Is there a right way to be controversial? So not so much is it a good thing or is it a bad thing, is there a right way to be controversial? Well, I came across this thought a few days ago in response to that question. It says, there has been some interesting research that shows that people care, care deeply about their three Bs. Now, have a wee think for a moment. What do you think the three Bs might be that people care deeply about? Anyone want to take a guess? Beliefs is one. Brilliant, Ruth. Two more. Belonging, Belonging is two. Not, well... Belonging, not their belongings, okay? Belonging is the other one. And then one more that people care about. Here, here's the three. Behavior. Behavior, belonging, and belief. And here's what the article said about this. If you can create controversy regarding someone's behavior, their beliefs, or their sense of belonging, they will seek to either confirm your stance or disprove of your stance on any of those things. But either one is good for you. Why? Because it creates a buzz. It gets people talking. So the right way to be controversial gets people talking about things that matter, things that they care about. Jesus created a buzz. I want to suggest Jesus cared and cares passionately for these three Bs. He cares about our behavior. 
He cares about our sense of belonging. He cares about what we believe. Jesus said many things that caused disagreement and discussion. And over 2,000 years after he first said some of them, people are still engaging with them. People are still getting worked up and het up by a number of the things that Jesus said. Jesus was controversial. And for a few months now, we've been considering some of those controversial statements that he did come out with. And so the last one we looked at, I'm not going to go over them all again, but just the last one we looked at was this one. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciples. Now, as you can imagine, telling people to hate their families in order to follow him was a highly provocative thing for Jesus to say. Surely that's the kind of thing that gets people talking. Well, tonight's controversial saying, as Stephen has introduced it to us, it's probably more inflammatory than this one. Probably more incendiary than all the rest of the controversial things that Jesus ever said. And that is according to many people and an increasing number, a growing number of people today. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as Stephen has said, or the question this raises in many people's mind, is Jesus the only way to God? Is Jesus the only way to God. Are there not many paths, alternative paths, different paths up that mountain that all lead us to the same destination, that all lead us to God, but surely there are different routes, but we'll all get there in the end. Many years ago, Oprah Winfrey famously said this, I believe there are many paths to God. I certainly don't believe that there is only one way. There couldn't possibly be just one way to God. I am a Christian who believes that there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. Which is an interesting thought because Christianity isn't the path to God. Jesus is. Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to me, no one comes to the Father except not through Christianity, but through me. And this uh, controversial statement of Jesus has certainly created a lot of heated discussion, which is why there's so many web articles that Stephen has trolled through, and you can get the websites from him later. But it's the reason why, because it, it has created, and it continues to create, and maybe in the 21st century, it, it, there's, there's more disagreement about this because we live now in a world of tolerance, don't we? A world with a myriad and a multitude of religions in a pluralistic age. And so the apparent exclusivity of Jesus' claim, well, all that is now viewed as is that's arrogant, as Stephen said. That's highly contentious. That's narrow. That's offensive. To say that Jesus is the only way to God is not popular. It's not acceptable. And it's certainly not open-minded. And yet Jesus said it. 
I suppose that's where it started. I mean, do we believe Jesus said it? But we're here tonight and we're reading from God's word, which records that Jesus did said. And so in one sense, we can't deny that. That's a key declaration of the gospels. And therefore, we've got to seriously consider it irrespective of how controversial it is, because the implications of what Jesus said in AD 33 are still as huge in 2019. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to consider this statement for for a few moments together. So if you have a Bible, it's John 14. It's page 1082. And I want to look carefully at the context into which Jesus said this. I want to look at what was going on. What led up to this claim of Jesus? Because you see, we all know that verses and one-liners that are taken out of context can lead to all kinds of confusion and misunderstanding. Now, I'm not about to suggest that John 14.6 can ever be or should never be taken as a standalone statement. But I want us to be really, really careful about where it fits into the story. Before we, uh, we read the story, before we read the first six verses, behind me in big print is this brilliant I am visual that's been there for, for a few months now. It was used at one of our engaged praise services to remind us and to help us stay focused on the object of our worship, the object of our worship being the great I am. But one of the fascinating aspects of John's gospel is the number of I am statements that John records Jesus making about himself. Now, the fact that Jesus used this term, I am, is is also fascinating because it made it clear that what Jesus was saying to people was, listen, the Father and I are, are one. I'm not only fully human, but I'm fully divine. And so I am. And so Jesus was able to say, I am. And in John's gospel, we, re- we read seven I am statements that Jesus came out with. John 14, verse 6, is one of them. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But let's get a little bit of audience participation, congregation, not audience, congregation participation. What are the other six? Anybody know the other six that are in John's gospel where Jesus says, I am what? I am the gate, or I am the door. If anyone enters me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture, right? That's number two. Another one? I am the bread of life. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So that's three. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, says Jesus, you can do nothing. So that's four. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. He who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So that's five. Two more. The good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Six. Six. One more. Come on. We can do this. 
I am the light, Anil, brilliant. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here, there they are. Seven great I am statements of John's gospel. But John 14, where does it fit? Well, those of you who know your Bibles and know God's word and know the gospels will be aware that this is part of the so-called, the commonly referred to farewell discourse of Jesus. This farewell discourse of Jesus starts in John chapter 14, verse 1, and it runs right up to and includes John chapter 17. And this farewell discourse was given to 11 of his disciples immediately after the Last Supper on the night before his crucifixion. This was, if you like, his farewell speech to his disciples to help them prepare for the dark and difficult days and events that lay ahead of them. And it's really vital and it's really important that we see this and we realize this, that this controversial claim of Jesus was not made in the public square. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, etc. It was not made in the public square. It was not made in the context of a debate amongst religious leaders. It was not said to crowds of people. It was said in an intimate gathering of his closest friends. These words came in the context of support and encouragement. And so what I want to say tonight and what many others have said in the past is these words that Jesus said, John 14, 6, are primarily words of comfort as opposed to words of controversy. And you see, unless we, we kind of realize that and get that, I think we abuse at times the saying of Jesus. The fact that they have become controversial is at one level and a whole other issue. So let's start reading so we, we see this and get this. So verse one, if you have it in front of you there. Here's the opening remark of Jesus as he begins his farewell discourse. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And that immediately communicates something, doesn't it? It says something wasn't right with his disciples. They were not in a great place. Their heads, if you like, their hearts, their minds were all over the show. They were troubled. They were concerned. They were disturbed. They were anxious. But about what? Why did Jesus have to say this to them? The very first line in his farewell speech. Why did he have to say this? What was it that was causing their hearts to be so troubled? Well, it was a number of things. Back in chapter 12, in front of a big crowd of people, and the disciples were part of that big crowd, Jesus had confirmed that I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. But a chapter later, in chapter 13, as he sits around a table with just his 12 disciples at that point in an upper room, Jesus shared three more shocking pieces of news with his disciples. The first was... One of you is going to betray me. The second was, I'm going to be leaving you. And I mean, I'm going to be going somewhere that you cannot go. And the third shocking thing that Jesus shared with his disciples was, Peter, you're going to disown me. You're going to deny me three times. 
And this information rocked and wrecked the disciples' world. And Jesus knew it and Jesus sensed it. And so he begins to speak into their situation and into their trouble and into their confusion and into their angst by saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. And in this statement, you believe in God, believe also in me. And so immediately Jesus is saying to his disciples, I need you to trust me. I know what I've shared is deeply troubling, but I need you to trust me. You trust God? I need you to trust me as well. And why do I need you to trust me? Well, let's read on. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And so in the midst of their anxiety and their scrambled heads, Jesus assures his disciples, here's what he says to them. Guys, you're on your way home. You're on your way to my father's house. And see this house, it's huge. It's got many rooms. Or in your version, many dwelling places. Or if you use the King James, what's the King James? In my father's house are many what? Mansions. She's saying, listen, come home. You're on your way home. There's plenty of space in my father's house for you. You don't need to fear the future. Yes, there are dark and difficult days ahead, but home awaits. You're not being left behind. You're not being abandoned. You're heading home. And Jesus tells them that he is on his way to prepare a place for them. He says, I go to prepare a place. And notice, for you, it's personal. And then in verse 3, he confirms two more vital aspects to bring comfort and offer hope. He says, listen, I'm going to take you there. Now, what exactly Jesus meant in this context here in John 14 when he said, I'm going to come again, was this come again after he died? The first time after his death on the cross, was this about a reference to resurrection? Or was this a reference to when he is going to come again ultimately in the second advent? We're not entirely sure. But I'm going to come again. And I'm going to take you to be with me. The other thing, I'm not just going to take you, but you're going to be where I am. So all this talk of leaving you, it's a temporary measure. It's not permanent. You're never going to see me. That, you're not never going to see me again. But what exactly did Jesus mean when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you? And I think this is really interesting. What did Jesus mean he was preparing a place? Well, sometimes... We think, and I probably have more than I haven't in the past, if I'm honest, that this somehow refers to the idea that Jesus is getting heaven ready for my arrival. That he's doing the place up because it's not quite right. That somehow it's still under construction, that it's still a work in progress, which when you think about it, it's a nonsense. Is heaven not ready? I know one day there's going to come a new heaven and new earth, but is heaven not ready? I mean, has Jesus been engaged in DIY for the last 2,000 years? But sometimes that's what we think. 
when we think Jesus is going to prepare a place. The Father's house is ready for us. So what was the preparation that Jesus was telling the disciples he needed to do, that he needed to go to, that they couldn't follow him to? What was the preparation? Somebody. Death. It's the cross. That's what Jesus was referring to here in John 14. It was his imminent death. That was how Jesus was going to prepare a place for them. Because it was via his death that people would be drawn to him. I mean, Jesus had said that back in John 12. He said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. And he said this to illustrate the kind of death he was going to die. You see, to prepare a place in heaven or at home for each of us didn't need a revamp. It needed the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. That was the preparation that's required. And only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could go there, which is why whenever you do flick back to chapter 13, Jesus says this to Peter whenever the confused disciples said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. You see, no one else could die like Jesus. No one else could go where Jesus was going, but as a result of his death, the way to God, the way home was opened up. Then, says Jesus, you, Peter, and every disciple, and every one of us can follow me afterwards. So the preparation that Jesus needed to do was to lay down his life. That's why Jesus was on this journey to Jerusalem, because Jesus was preparing to die. And and back to verse 4, where Jesus then says, and you know the way to where I am going. And the way to where I'm going is the way of the cross. Jesus had been telling his disciples this for days, months maybe. This is why I'm on this journey. I'm heading for Jerusalem because I'm going to die. I'm going the way of the cross. And the only way home to God and to be with God for all eternity and to be in his immense dwelling place is via the cross. And that has been the message and the hope of Christianity for two millennia. But you see, lots of people today, just like the original disciples, missed this. They just didn't understand. And so even though Jesus had been talking like this for a while, there was some confusion, there were some questions, there was heaps of doubts. And if you need someone to voice a doubt, someone is Thomas. And so Thomas says to him, verse 5, we didn't, it wasn't on the screen, verse 6, Lord, we do not know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And in response, Jesus comes out with that statement. Not of controversy, but of comfort. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You don't need to be troubled. You don't need 
to be confused. You don't need to get all het up about what lies ahead, about your current or your eternal future or well-being, because I am here for you, and I and I alone am going to take you home. Do you trust me? Will you trust me? I am the way, says Jesus. I'm the path to God. I am the truth. I am full of grace and truth. What I say is true. And the reason what I say is true because I only say what the Father gives me to say. So I am the truth. And I am the life because in me is life. This was how John's gospel started, wasn't it? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was what? Life. And that life is the light of all mankind. Jesus has been saying all along, I am the source of life. And then in John 10, 10, I have come not just to give you life, but to give you life in all its fullness. And then in John 11, as Tim said earlier, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, they will live. Do we believe? That's the issue. That's the question. These are such comforting words that Jesus is the way to God Jesus is truth from God Jesus is the source of life real life full life eternal life I'm not that sure how many of you are familiar with Thomas Akempis how many people have heard of Thomas Akempis number of people German Catholic priest who wrote the imitation of Christ 500 years ago a book that has become and remains a highly influential source of Christian devotional reading. But here's, here's what he, he wrote in, in this little book. Uh, it's not that little. But here's what he wrote in this book about John 14. And I love it. He says this. I am the way, the truth. As he was reflecting on what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, the life for which you must hope. I am the invaluable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. If you abide in my way, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, and you shall attain life everlasting. That is a brilliant summary, I think, of what Jesus was saying to his disciples in order to comfort them. In order to give them hope. In order to let them know, listen, in my father's house. Because I'm bringing you home. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And how am I preparing a place for you? I'm laying down my very life for you. I'm dying in your place. I'm dying for your sin. I'm dying so you never have to die. But you will live forever. In my Father's spacious dwelling place. And if that idea seems far too controversial in our 21st century world, then please allow controversy to stimulate conversation. And I want to finish with a great quote from Kevin DeYoung, who actually, and some of you will know Kevin DeYoung and will read a lot of his stuff, will listen to a lot of his sermons online. 
But he actually makes the point that all paths do lead to God. But not how Oprah Winfrey sees it. Here's what he says. All paths lead to God. But only one path will present you before God without fault and with great joy. Pick a path, any path. It will take you to God, trust me. You will stand before him one day. You will meet your maker. You will see the face of Christ. There are many ways up the mountain. But only one will result in life. And that only one is Jesus who said this. But please realize that these are words of comfort that offer support and encouragement and they have the potential to transform lives. And so if you long for home, if you long for home, listen to Jesus, believe in Jesus and thank him for preparing a place for you and preparing the way for you by laying down his life as we are about to remember now.